0: Uh, We're in 2 Corinthians 4. We left off at the end of verse 6 last time, but I'm going to start by reading 1 through 6 and just kind of catching us up. We'll see if we can get through the first five verses of chapter 5 tonight. I have no idea if we will. So Paul starts chapter 4 saying, Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. Something I didn't mention last week, I think it's interesting that Paul says, I have this ministry where I've been uh, beaten and stoned and shipwrecked and I've suffered. And he says, I've had this ministry by the mercy of God. It's God's mercy that I have this ministry where I've suffered so much. We'll get into that later in 2 Corinthians. I just thought of that. Anyway, um, but having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. We do not lose hope. So what Paul is saying is that salvation is a work of the Spirit. And so uh, the fact that people are veiled, uh, his cleverness or my cleverness or your cleverness will never be able to pierce that veil. It's got, there's got to be an assist by the Holy Spirit to be able to lift the veil and, and have people see the truth. In verse 5, for, we proclaim, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So he, he talks about how he's not gonna use clever rhetoric to get done uh, what he believes God's mission is. He's gonna be obedient and faithful and do what God calls them to do and leave the, leave the results up to God. Uh, the Corinthians, we, we've talked, if, you've, if you had been here uh, from the very beginning of 1 Corinthians, the Corinthians were used to, um, well, kind of like the culture we live in today. You're great because of your abilities. You're great because of your talent. You're great because you achieve things. And Paul's saying that's not how the gospel gets me- measured. Now you can be great, that's, that's not the problem, but if you apply that to the gospel, then you've got issues, and that's part of the issue of what's happening in, in Corinth. So then, what I want to do is read the rest of chapter 4 together, because it all kind of goes together, even though in the ESV there are three different paragraphs, but I want it to flow, and then we'll just go and unpack those 17 verse. I'm sorry, 12 verses, I will go back and reread some of them occasionally as we work our way through it, but let's just read the rest of chapter 4 together as one unit. He writes But we have this treasure in jars of clay. What does that mean? To show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We're perplexed, but not driven to despair. We're persecuted, but not forsaken. We're struck down, but not destroyed. By the way, some of you are old enough to remember there was a praise song that just used those words. Does anybody? I I used to sing that in the early 2000s all the time. Clay. It wasn't written by jars of clay, but it was these words right here. Um, Afflicted, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not despairing. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Those were the lyrics of the song. Though our elder self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Verse 17 is really important. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So, verse 7, what does it mean that we have this treasure in these jars of clay? Uh, the treasure is the gospel, but who or what is or are the jars of clay? And what is Paul trying to say with that metaphor? Well, actually, sorry. Go, no, go ahead. We are the jars of clay. We are the jars of clay. That's exactly right. You can come read my notes. Actually, we are the jars of clay. Christians. So then the question becomes, well, what does that signify? Why are we jars of clay? What's the metaphor mean? What's the symbolism of that metaphor? How do you draw that out? And there are three really important things there. Number one, jars of clay are common. Jars of cl- Now, I hate to destroy your delicate self-esteem, but God uses us very common people, okay? He uses the common foolish things of this world to confound those who believe they are wise in this world. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 1. So he's just reiterating that argument. So God uses the common. He uses the pedestrian. He uses the foolish to confound those in this world who believe that they are the wise people. Um, one of my favorite stories, I love the book of Acts. We were going to do Acts Uh, the book of Acts except everybody else is studying the book of Acts right now in our church the men's study the women's study and so I okay whatever they got to it before me anyway but one of my favorite stories in Acts is in chapter four when Peter and John are arrested for preaching the gospel and they go before the Sanhedrin and the chief priests and they have this argument you know and and they say hey uh, you know we're gonna we're gonna um, obey God not you and at Uh, In chapter, in verse 13, I think it is, um, it says, when the chief priests, when the Sanhedrin saw that Peter and James were common, ordinary, and then the word in the Greek is idiotas. Can anybody guess what (laughs) English word we get from the Greek word idiotas? When they saw that they were common, ordinary idiots. And yet, they were speaking this way. They had this confidence. They had this boldness. And they were able to out-argue the chief priests. Okay? It blew their mind. It blew their mind. God uses the common to confound the wise of this world. So, jars of clay are common. Second of all, jars of clay are also fragile. So, not only does God use the common, pedestrian, and foolish... But in order to demonstrate his power and sufficiency, he uses also that which is fragile. And the reason that's important is because if we were strong, then we would would say, yeah, we're the ones doing this work. We're the ones that are converting people. So it's it's Paul's way of reminding us again that God is the power, God is the strength, God is the one uh, doing the work. We are obedient and carrying out the mission, but God's the one that actually does the work. And then number three... Jars of clay are also known as earthen vessels. So what this reminds us of is that God created us. And that is good and that we were made for his purposes. This is how God has chosen to spread the gospel and show his light. Through earthen vessels, jars of clay, us. So I think it's a beautiful um, metaphor. And then verses 8 and 9, because we are fragile and common we are susceptible to all of these afflictions, crushings, pressures, trials, and suffering that everyone in the world experiences. Everyone does, okay? But because we have Christ, we are afflicted. That word afflicted there means crushed temporarily, but we are not crushed. That word there means eternally. It's a play on words in the Greek. So we're crushed temporarily, but not crushed eternally, okay? Okay? We're perplexed, we're confused, we're dismayed, but we're not driven to despair. Things in this world perplex me, confuse me, they vex me. I love the word vex. They vex me. (laughs) It's an old word. They vex me, okay, Uh, and, and, and I get disturbed by those things, but I don't despair because I know Christ is in control and ultimately I have that home. Okay, I have that power, so I'm not hopeless. Uh, we are persecuted, oppressed, and made to suffer for our faith, but we're not forsaken. God will never leave us. He'll never abandon us. God does not remove the circumstances of our challenging life. That's what we want God to do. We want God's st- standard operating procedure to, to be, hey, I'm having a really tough time. Take me out of this circumstance. Um, that's what we would like, and he has the power to do that, and on some rare occasions, he will do that. But primarily, his standard operating procedure is to say, I'm going to walk with you through it. And you're going to learn something from this. You're going to come out of this on the other end a better person. That's James chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. Consider it all joy, beloved, when you encounter trials of various kinds. Because the testing of your faith, there's the gospel component, will produce... And the Greek word is hupamene, and it's variously translated as endurance, steadfastness, perseverance, or patience. Okay? So, this is one of the distinct advantages of the Christian life, I believe. Everyone suffers, everyone is perplexed, everyone is made to be perplexed, anxious, and stressed, but only Christians really understand that God is walking with us through it, and that there's a purpose in that. Okay? Okay? when I teach about various worldview eras in my COM 100 class, we get into a little bit of philosophy there, because there's philosophy involved in communication, human communication theory. Uh, when I teach about that, I said I, I, I teach them about what, what, what's known as the modern era, the world, modern worldview era, which started sometime around the year 1500 and began to end sometime around the year 1950, and if. You, And that's kind of when postmodernism started, okay? And one of the reasons we have postmodernism, not all of them, but one of the reasons we have postmodernism is as a uh, reaction against all the promises that the modern worldview era made to us because of the scientific process, the industrial revolution, and and all of these uh, things. Uh, The modern era promised that for humanity, we don't need God anymore, because through science and through the industrial revolution, through technology, through us becoming smarter, we're gonna be able to answer every question, solve every problem, and eliminate all, all suffering. That was the promise, okay? So have you ever heard, I, I'm one of those persons that likes to under-promise and over-deliver. Have you ever been around somebody who overpromises and under Well, the problem with the modern era is that it over-promised and under-delivered, okay? And so postmodernism pushes back against that, and that's why uh, one of the defining characteristics of the postmodern worldview is that you're suspicious of everything, okay? I could go off on this for another hour. It fascinates me, but uh, we need to get back to the text. But, um, uh, but we have to remember that... Uh, People in this world, are still walking around saying, I have to find a way to eliminate all my suffering because that's what I deserve. Okay. But they don't want to submit themselves to God in order to understand suffering. Most, I'm still on this. Okay. So the most, I used to do something at, uh, when I was leading Paradise Valley Community Church, uh, we would do it, like every year we do this uh, questions for God thing, which I, I hated the title of it but it was a tradition in the church so people for four weeks would submit questions to the uh to the pastors and then we'd sort through them and decide which ones we're going to answer biblically of course so every year same thing Uh, let's just i'll keep the math simple let's say a hundred questions were submitted okay 50 of those questions were this question Um, if god is such a loving god why is there suffering in the world Okay, so half the questions were that, and then the other half of the questions were everything else. Everybody wanted to know if God is so loving, why is there suffering in this world? And one of the things that would frustrate me is is it would be like, you don't have a biblical worldview if you have to ask that question. God did not, some of them would say, why does God cause suffering? Okay, Uh, God didn't cause the suffering, God is not. The reason for suffering, God did not create suffering. Who did? Same. We did. We did. Through our disobedience. Yeah. Yeah. We're the problem. With, see, everybody, everybody wants to blame everything else. So, so even, even people who are Bible-believing, Jesus-following Christians, still don't understand the theology of suffering. And I think that's... I, I know it's hard. I don't like to suffer either. I hate suffering. And trust me, you all... Well. You know, Ira and I are kind of in there, but, well, I guess a few more of you, too. I, I, Sorry, but, you know, when you get to a certain age, there's a lot more suffering. Can I get an amen? Yeah. Right? I get you it, I, 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 yeah, I, that's sad, okay. I'm telling <laughs> you. Yeah. I mean, we're going to get to, uh, well, we'll get, I'll, I'll talk more about that later. I mean, when we get to uh, verse 16, okay. All right. So anyway, um, we're never going to solve the suffering question outside of uh, scripture. Uh, we are struck down and pushed around, and, and we're relentlessly body checked. That's a hockey reference for some of you. Um, but we are not ever ever destroyed. So we're wounded but not killed. Okay. Um, and that that actually references back even to uh, Genesis three fifteen where God is uh, pr- pronouncing the curses and there's these three sections of curses. By the way, the curses in Genesis 3.15, if, uh, in Genesis 3, if you read the curses, they are representative, not comprehensive of the corruption that sin uh, gave to the world. Because if, if it was a comprehensive list of the corruption, it's possible that God would still be writing Genesis 3. Okay, <laughs> So they're representative, but in 3.15, he tells Satan, he says, um, you and the woman... And your offspring and the woman's offspring are going to have enmity with each other. There's going to be animus there, okay? Uh, and he says, uh, your offspring will bruise his, her offspring's heel and hit her, offspring's, uh, her offspring will bruise your offspring's head. Okay, so what does that mean? That's, that's Hebrew, uh, ancient Hebrew colloquialism. Bruising somebody's heel means you're going to wound them. So what what God is saying to Satan is your offspring is going to wound the Messiah because her offspring is Jesus, the Messiah. That's what he's referencing. Genesis 3.15 is known as the Proto-Evangelion, the first gospel message in the Bible, the first good news in the Bible. God already has a plan for this. He's going to send Jesus, an offspring of Eve, okay? And Satan is going to wound him by sending him to the cross. Now, yes, Satan, Jesus did die. We know that. A a coroner would have pronounced him as dead, okay? But he was resurrected to new life. So in in a sense, he was just wounded. He had his heel bruised, okay? Um, But he, the Messiah, the woman's offspring, will bruise Satan's offspring's head, That means, in ancient Hebrew colloquialism, it means that you will utterly destroy, you will kill. So when Jesus busted out of that tomb on the third day of the resurrection, it was victory over Satan, sin, and death, and he destroyed all three. Now, you may say, well, why why do we still have so many problems? We're in what's called the already, but not yet. We have already won, but we have not yet received the benefits of actually winning. Because the new Jerusalem hasn't come yet, so we're waiting for that. But we have one. It's kind of like, um, here's why the hope is so assured. Because this, this, all of chapter 4 is really ultimately about hope. We're going to end with hope too. Okay, The hope we have in Jesus. It's not a worldly hope, it's it's this eternal hope. It's, it's like this, the already but not yet is like this. Uh, some of you have maybe heard this story before, but... Um, uh, during, the, during the 1999 Stanley Cup final, I was really interested in this final, even though the Blackhawks were not in it. I was interested in this final because Dallas was in the final and I wanted them to win uh, the Stanley Cup because I really liked Mike Modano a lot. He played for the Dallas Stars. It was game six Saturday night against Buffalo. That was the last time the Sabres were in the Stanley Cup finals. They may never make it again. Anyway, um, so game six, but I'm away on a preaching trip. And I can't, I have to speak Saturday night and Sunday morning, so I can't watch the game. So I asked Jackie to tape it for me on a VHS, y'all remember VHS tape, (laughs) Tape the game for me Saturday night, okay? And what I'm going to do is I'm going to avoid all media Saturday night, Sunday morning, driving all the way back. I'll get home about 3 o'clock, I'm going to avoid all media, I'm going to walk into the house and I'm going to put the tape in and I'm going to watch game 6. So I have no idea how it turns out, Okay? So I made it all the way back, all the way back. I'm pulling into my driveway, and my neighbor down the street, Bill, who plays semi-pro hockey and loves, and loves hockey and knows I love hockey, he's running down the street yelling, Did you see it? Did you see it? Brett Hull's overtime goal. The Stars won the cup. My windows were down. <laughs> and I heard him. okay? I was like, No, I can't believe it. So I went in and did I still watch the tape? Yes, I did. But here you go. I watched the tape already knowing the outcome. Do you, do you see what I'm trying to get at? Okay. We're living this life knowing the outcome. Jesus wins. Okay. Jesus is Brett Hull in this, in this scenario who scored the <laughs> overtime goal. Okay. So, so we may lose the battle, but we'll always win the war. Why is that? Paul tells us in verses 10 through 12. Okay. It's the finished work of Christ. Because we are in Christ, we carry with us at all times uh, that which Christ went through and lived and did. We have that in us. I know we don't feel it. We, can't, we can maybe imagine what it's like to be crucified, uh, to be persecuted that way, to be oppressed. But we, we carry that with us. He's imputed that to us. His death in us in a good way. His death atoned for our sin. So now... We are now in him and we are blameless for our sin. And that is amazing. But also his resurrection, his life is also in us. So we live eternally. We live now, we live eternally. Remember, salvation is, is not just for eternity, but salvation is also for now. We live in our salvation now. A lot of people kind of just use, you know, the gospel as sort of a, the insurance policy in their hip pocket. Can't wait till I get there, but I'm going to live life until then. Okay, no, we're saved now. Changes our worldview now. So both the death of Jesus and the life of Jesus is at work in us now and always for our redemption, for our benefit, for our salvation. And then verses 13 and 14, let me reread those. Since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what has been written... I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. Okay? Now what does verse 13 mean? Uh, Good question, I'm glad you asked. Paul, again, is a trained Jewish professional religious person. Professional religious person, We call them perps, okay? So he's a trained Jewish perp, right? He knows the Hebrew Bible like the back of his hand. In fact, he has it memorized. It's the only way he could become a Pharisee was to have the entire Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, memorized, okay? And what he has here is a quote from Psalm 116. It's verse 10, but I want to read you the first 14 verses of Psalm 116. If you want to turn there, please turn there, but I'm going to read it to you. It's a magnificent psalm, and it is the environment of this psalm and what, um, what is being prayed here is exactly the context that the Christians in the first century found themselves in. And you'll get what I mean as I start to read this psalm. Psalm 116, starting at verse 1. I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my plea, plea for mercy. I love him because, because he understands my distress. Because he inclined his ear to me, therefore I will call on him as long as I live. The snares of death encompassed me, the pangs of Sheol, their version of hell, laid hold on me. I suffered distress and anguish. And then I called on the name of the Lord. O oh Lord, please, I pray, deliver my soul. Gracious is the Lord and righteous, our God is merciful. The God uh, the Lord preserves the simple. Can you see all the correlations Mm -hmm. with what Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians 4? You see all these correlations here. The Lord preserves the simple. When I was brought low, he saved me. Return, O my soul, to your rest, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. For you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. And here's the verse he quotes. I believed, even when I spoke, I am greatly afflicted. Uh, when, when somebody like Paul in the New Testament quotes one verse of a passage like this, what his audience understands is that he's really quoting the entire psalm. Okay? that he, 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 The receiver of that one quote, that one verse is thinking now about the entire psalm. And that's why I'm reading at least through um, verse 14. I said in my alarm, all mankind are liars. What shall I render to the Lord? For all this benefits to me. I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of His people. So, it's a magnificent testimony with all these similar situations as the Corinthians. Corinthians. So even in distress and affliction, even while being crushed by life and by people, by situations, whatever, I still believe and therefore I will testify to the Lord. But then these verses are also shades of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the resurrection chapter. The the reality and the importance of the resurrection. So he's even referring back to that. Paul makes it clear that now in his context... And in the context of the Corinthians and in our context, it is the resurrection, the new life, the eternal life that gives us the ability to testify to the Lord. And then verse 15, God is glorified when people come to Christ and we should be grateful for that. I got to tell you a little God story. that I didn't have in my notes until Sunday about this. So if you were here Sunday, you know, we made this. It wasn't a regular Sunday. We didn't really have a sermon Uh, We had these different speakers. I was one of them presenting the expansion plans for the church. Um, Tyler James, our executive pastor and I, uh, separately for weeks, and then we figured it out on Sunday morning when we talked with each other. We, We both just, we felt such a tremendous weight about this last Sunday morning. Tremendous, tremendous weight. Not because we were gonna ask the congregation for money. That's a weight all its own. I'm sure you can understand that, but the greater weight was we're having a Sunday service and we're not doing a sermon that proclaims the gospel. You know, we we were really distressed about that. Okay, and so we said, "Well, it is what it is. We have to do this. This is the most efficient way to be able to communicate this to as many people at once as possible." Uh, we we you know work through all of that. Um, After, not after, uh, well, after the presentation part in the second service during the communion song, Tyler was standing over in the wings over here to receive people for prayer if they wanted prayer with uh, Melissa, one of our deacons. And this guy, 22, 23 years old, walks up and he says, I just felt the strong conviction of the Lord and the Holy Spirit, I guess, today, I have to give my life to Jesus today. And he prayed to receive Jesus right there. And, and, and Tyler and I, later on when he was unpacking that for me, it was like, see, it's not up to us. We can, even, we can even do this on a Sunday morning and somehow God is working in the midst of that. So it's just, again, it's a reminder of what Paul is saying here. Not about us. God's in charge of this. We just have to be faithful and obedient. That's the key to this, okay? Um, furthermore, one of the keys to living well is to live in gratitude, not constantly looking for ways that we are victims. One of my favorite books of the the last uh, four or five years is, um, oh shoot, it's written by two different uh, sociologists, one's last name is Campbell, I can't remember the other one, and the name of the book is, oh, here it is, It's, it's The Rise of Victimhood Culture. The Rise of Victimhood Culture. These are non-Christians, again, okay. These are non-Christians who are recognizing there's something really wrong in our culture right now. And they uh, walk through for about 400 pages and explain and explicate why we're living in this victimhood culture. Uh, The history of it, the philosophical history of it, the, the seasons we've gone through to get here and why people are doing this now and why it's a problem. And, and we really do. It's, it's like the greatest status now in our culture is to be a victim. That is the greatest status that anybody can bestow on you. That's why we have social media, just people constantly crying victimhood, 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 you know. And, and, and then just uh, on, a, on a real micro level, we see this all the time too. So here are just some examples. If you and I are always looking for reasons that our spouse is wrong and bad and not a tiny bit thankful for them, and not understanding that we're also no day at the beach either, (laughs) okay, all right? If we're always looking for reasons that we're getting uh, messed up at work, even though work allows us to pay our bills, if we're always looking for how we get the short end of the stick and are never able to celebrate the victories that we do have, if we're sure that everyone is taking advantage of us even as we are benefiting from others. In other words, if we shun gratitude We are destined to be and will be miserable always, always. We will be unable to experience joy, contentment, blessing, favor, appreciation, or even fun. I found that people who are into this victimhood culture, they are no fun to be around. They're just, they're not the life of the party. I I will tell you uh, that. Uh, And again, um, this... uh, idea that we can eliminate uh, suffering and this idea that I deserve to be happy and and the whole purpose of my life is to be happy. Um, People need to read uh, what the Harvard research psychologists have been putting out for the last 15 or 20 years. The clear unequivocal conclusions in their research that people who make happiness their life purpose are the most miserable people in the world because happiness never comes from the pursuit of happiness itself it always comes as a consequential effect of some other greater endeavor which I would argue is seeking the holiness of the Lord but what they argue is is essentially um, living a life of altruism living a life that's other oriented gospel-centered outward focused living a life that serves others, that thinks about others. That's actually the road to happiness. And then they say this, this is what kills me. Then they say this, but if you're gonna adopt this methodology so that you can be happy, it won't work. Because your goal is still happiness above everything else. Now you're just using it as a methodology. You have to have a true transformation into somebody who is outward focused. I'm using outward focus for their language. Their language is altruism, okay? So the question is, do you really wanna live uh, without joy, without gratitude? I, I don't, okay? Uh, and so here you go. L- let, me, let me just harp on this a little bit more. I have essays that I've read and, and um, I might work it into a one-off sermon sometime. But one area uh, that I see this, this is fascinating to me. The insane number of young celebrity stars who are sitting on net worths Of tens and sometimes hundreds of millions of dollars I'll just tell you I have the article if you want to see it Jennifer Lawrence is one of them you all know who Jennifer Lawrence is she's one of them she's worth a couple hundred million dollars okay and she's just like so many of these others young stars that have millions and millions of, of dollars movie stars entertainers social media influencers It's just amazing because for so many of them, it's not enough to be famous and wealthy. They must have to have other people feel sorry for them too. They want other people, oh, my life is so hard. They need people to feel sorry for them as well. So I think that's actually a testimony, which by the way, we're going to talk about this Sunday with Solomon. Y'all know Solomon. (laughs) Average annual income in today's dollars, 500 billion dollars a year, okay, a thousand women, you know, a palace, okay, it's again, it's a testimony to the fact that wealth and fame will not fulfill you in a way that only God can, it's not that wealth and fame are bad, it's, 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 it's not that any of those things are bad, it's when you expect them to do what only God can do for you, so Paul talks about that, okay, So I would argue, as Neil Postman wrote 35 years ago, we have thoroughly amused ourselves to death. Anybody read Neil Postman's book, Amusing Ourselves to Death? Let me tell you something. That book was written in 1986. It's more applicable now than it was then. That book was prophetic. Again, not a Christian. Not a Christian guy. All right, verses 16 through 18. Let me mention those. Uh, Let me reread it. So we do not lose heart. Okay? So he, he's, he's bookending here. It, the, the rhetorical term is uh, inclusio. He started uh, this chapter by saying we do not lose heart. He's going to end the chapter by saying we do not lose heart. We have hope. Though the outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, they're temporary, and the things that are unseen are eternal. So again, a return to verse 1. We don't lose heart. We have hope. We persevere. We remain steadfast. Uh, And then verse 16. Though the outer self is wasting away, the inner self is being renewed day by day. Stephen, you might remember um, uh, one of the four... I did Stephen's premarital... Uh, I, uh, one of the four truths of a gospel-centered marriage is you are not marrying a finished product, but a work in progress. That's, what every day. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. So here you go. Uh, 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 we live in a culture that values being a finished product. And th- again, there's nothing wrong with that.? Okay. I would like to see you all go out and get jobs, get clients, get promotions, get raises presenting yourself as not a finished product because everybody else is and they're good at it okay they're they're they have a finished product at being a finished product okay they're really good all right but the way God sees us also is that we're a work in progress so Philippians chapter 1 verse 6 Paul writes and I am confident of this that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it in the day of Christ Jesus you're never finished you're a work in progress Here, this verse right here, though the outer self is wasting away, the inner self is being renewed day by day. This is a little bit more earthy and gritty, and I'll get into that in a second than the other places that Paul talks about this. But one of the other places he talks about it is Romans chapter 8, where he says you are being conformed to the image of God's Son. Now, when God looks at you, because you're in Christ, he sees Jesus. But the reality is, again, we're living in this fallen, corrupt world until we die and we're with Jesus. The reality is that we're still being sanctified. We're still striving to become more and more like Jesus. And we are being conformed to the image of God's Son. We're a work in progress. Okay. So, um, I think it's, Schrader used to say of this verse, listen, the reality, you just have to deal with this reality. The reality is that we're all going to bag, sag, and drag. <laughs> gravity eventually wins. <laughs> it just does. Doesn't gravity win? Okay. Even most men, women don't seem to suffer this affliction quite as much, but most men, you know, they shrink. <laughs> That's just gravity pulling them down, okay? My dad was 5'11". When he died, he was 5'9". <laughs> you know, he shrank, you know? I feel it all the time too, okay? And then verse 17. Just look at verse 17. So you know Pastor Trey, right? This is, I think, his favorite verse. I think this is, he, he quotes this all the time in staff meetings and pastor meetings. He, he just lives on this verse. He says, look, the affliction we're suffering now is nothing compared to to the weight of the glory that we're going to have in Christ Jesus, okay? Nothing compared to that. And here's what's funny. This, this always cracks me up. It never cracks anybody up, else up, but it cracks me up. The word translated glory literally means heavy or of weight. That's what glory means, the Greek word for glory, the Hebrew word for glory too. It means heavy or of weight. It means gravitas, Okay. So in the 60s, when people would walk around and say, God's a heavy dude, they were theologically correct, okay? okay. And, and it's incomparably more than whatever this world has for us. So uh, again, another passage, uh, Philippians chapter one, just a little bit to the right there. Let me, let me read this to you. I, I've, I've said to many, many people, I'm a Philippians one Christian. I'm a Philippians 1 Christian. By that I mean Philippians 1 18, the last part of the verse, uh, verse 18 through 24. Okay? Paul writes this Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and with the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. He's in prison. Okay? As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be ashamed, but that with full courage now and as always Christ will be honored in my body whether by life or by death and then he gets into it for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain to die is gain if I am to live in the flesh that means fruitful labor for me I get to minister to people yet which shall I choose I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ. That would be my desire. For that's far better than living here. I remember our founding pastor, one of our two founding pastors, Tom Schrader, the last two or three years of his life, I, I would visit him um, every Wednesday in his home. Uh, instead of Tuesdays with Maury, it was Wednesdays with Tom or Wednesdays with Schrader. And um, I, I remember he, he just said, I'm, I'm sick of this world. I'm sick of it. And he said, and he would say, I, I'm even sick of my own sin. I just want to depart and be with Christ, you know. And, and by the way, he was just in his, he, when he finally passed away, he just turned 69. He died of cancer. Okay. Um, so he gets this as well. Paul says, I'm hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. So he's like, I know I'm going to get out of prison. I'm going to keep ministering for a few more years before they take me back and eventually uh, crucify me, which is what they did to Paul. So what I mean by I'm a Philippians 1 Christian is, and I think you've heard me say this before, I'm not afraid of dying. I'm just not excited about how I might die. I don't want to go through that. Um, but really dying, uh, absent the body, present with Christ. How, I don't know how that could be any better, you know. But now, just, just to alleviate any concern, I'm not walking around trying to figure out how I can accidentally off myself, okay. I'm not doing that, okay. One of the reasons I simply don't have the courage, <laughs> okay. I just, I just don't. But also, I also know that it wouldn't be God's will. You know, he's in charge of all of that. And then verse 18 Uh, Here in this verse, we find one of the most fundamental problems and challenges of the human experience. Uh, We believe that what we see is, in fact, all the reality that there is. You've heard the saying, you've probably said it, I've said it, I'll believe it when I see it, you know. But Paul reminds us that reality exists in a whole other dimension besides this three dimensional world that we live in or at least are aware of, okay, okay. And he speaks of that realm in Ephesians chapter 6, you know, the second half of Ephesians chapter 6, when he says, our beef is not with flesh and blood, it's not with other people, it's not with the things that we see, but rather our beef is with the power of the air. The prince of the air, Satan. That's the unseen. The author of Hebrews says it this way. Now, faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. As Christians, we're certain of what we do not see. Now, I'm not knocking what we do see. I really like most of what we get to see, hear, feel, taste, and smell. That, that would be the five senses, by the way, which you all learned in first grade or kindergarten if you were really advanced, okay? Okay. And God gave us these senses as a great gift to us because His creation is good, although it's it's corrupt and atrophying. Okay, but but to bank on these things is all there is. That's that's the wrong bet, and that investment of banking on just this stuff, of clinging to this stuff, is not an investment that will return anything but frustration. Anything but frustration. So where does that lead us? What's next? Again, I'm glad you asked. Paul uses um, this last verse of four to launch into a discussion of our heavenly, heavenly dwelling. And then we get to the famous we are ambassadors section of 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And we're out of time, so we're going to start with chapter 5, verse 1 next week. Okay? By the way, uh, I'm not going to do this uh, Thanksgiving Eve. The Wednesday before Thanksgiving, I'm not going to do this. Um, I don't think anybody's going to show up, first of all. <laughs> but second of all, we have family coming in. And then I won't do it the, the week between Christmas and New Year's either. I will still read Scripture every Tuesday morning. Stephanie just asked me that. This: Are you going to read Scripture every Tuesday morning all the way through the end? And I said, yes, because it's on Tuesday and nothing's happening. <laughs> so, And my commitment is to read it no matter what, um, even if there's nobody in here. But Wednesday night, not um, the 23rd of November, and not whatever that one is towards the end of December. So next week, start it. First Corinthians, Second uh, Corinthians, five, one. Uh, this Sunday, we start to wrap up Solomon and get ready. Start to get ready for Advent, and we do get to see Solomon turning from the Lord this Sunday. So everything was so good, and then now it's going to go really bad for him. So let me pray, and we'll go. We'll go. Uh, God, thank you again for your love and grace and mercy. As is so clearly outlined uh, in this chapter that we uh, looked at tonight, uh, the fact that um, you are so faithful to us. If we could just be a little bit faithful to you, uh, we'd be amazed at what would happen. So help us to be able to do that. Give us the courage to do that. But more importantly, fill us with your Holy Spirit so we can do that. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks for being here.